Lent begins with ashes. A reminder that the curse of death weighs on us all. As if our church needed that reminder this week. Death is not good. It is not our friend. We should not make peace with it. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's true that for the Christian, death has been defanged, that its victory is not final. But none of us escape it. We remain under its shadow. And even though we know well that the day will come when death will die, the shadow weighs heavy. There's a scene in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf warns the hobbit, Frodo Baggins, listen to what he says to him. Always after a defeat and a respite, the shadow takes another shape and grows again. Tolkien, in his deeply Christian imagination, is telling us something about what every human experiences. See, in one of Tolkien's writings, I'm about to properly nerd out on you. In one of Tolkien's other writings, we meet a character called Melkor. Those of you who have read the Silmarillion are like, ah, yeah. <laughs> Melkor is the original baddie in Tolkien's world. Sauron's master, the lord of the lord of the rings himself, the arch-corrupter of the world. And in one scene, Melkor presses his foot down in the neck of a hero, and Tolkien tells us that the weight of Melkor's foot was like a fallen hill. Hmm. A shadow with weight like a fallen hill. Does this sound familiar? If you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, perhaps it does. Told, uh, excuse me, Frodo felt the same crushing weight as he bore the ring, weight like a fallen hill. Remember when Frodo leaves the Shire? Gandalf tells him, you mustn't travel by your real name, Baggins. You must travel by what name? Underhill. Tolkien, in his deeply Christian, imaginative way, is telling us that every one of us bears the weight of the shadow. Like Frodo, we are underhill, subject to the weight of sin and death that burdens every son of Adam and daughter of Eve. Now, this leads into the first point that I want to make tonight. One could, as many in our world do, ignore the shadow. But to do so would be to ignore the basic assertion of Lent, that the problem with humanity lies not in our heads, but in our hearts. And this is the first point that I want to dwell on tonight. Our problem, the problem, 
is not a defect of the mind, but of the heart. Tolkien knew this. Here's a man who saw his contemporaries putting their trust in education and industry to heal all of the world's ills. They had gotten drunk on this idea that all the world's problems would disappear if only they could access the right data, the right cognitive content. They had come to believe that our most damaging deficiency as human beings is curable by a good dose of education. But we had misdiagnosed our sickness. It soon became clear that evil could not be vanquished by better ideas, and this became obvious as men from the most educated nations in Europe littered one another's bodies across the field of the Somme and Verdun. As soldiers slopped through an earthen soup of mud and blood, they learned that our problem is not our heads, but our hearts. The shadow is not the veil of ignorance. It is the darkness of the heart which was created to bear the light and life of its creator and to reflect that light and life in the world. Now here comes, in a moment, the good news. The Bible says that the heart is the center of a person, the fountain of our thoughts and words and deeds. So what we need is not new ideas, it's not new cognitive content, it's a new heart. And to acquire a new heart, Paul told us in our reading from 2 Corinthians, to acquire a new heart is to become a new creation. And at last, here's the good news. In Christ, Paul says, the new creation has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. In the Greek, it's only six words. If anyone in Christ, new creation. The Christian life calls for a new heart, Paul says, and the way that we live out of a new heart is not merely by embracing new ideas, it's by learning new habits. Remember, the problem with humanity, our problem, is not a defect of the mind, it's a defect of the heart. So what we need is not a new set of ideas, but new habits, practices that form us not just into a better version of homo sapiens, but into homo adorans, worshiping people, lovers of God. It's by acquiring new habits that we become windows onto the inbreaking kingdom, which is making all things new. Paul says, you have been made a new creation. You must live as a new creation. If anyone, in Christ, new creation. For Paul, those two ideas are inseparable. Now, historically during Lent, Christians have emphasized these three habits that Jesus holds up in Matthew 6, giving to the poor, prayer, fasting. I, tonight, want to focus just on the last of these habits, fasting. Because in the Bible, it's fasting which is most often associated with repentance. Now, some of us may come from traditions where fasting seems dodgy to us because it's performed in a gaudy, public, spectacular way. So fasting makes us uncomfortable. Others of us may come from traditions where fasting seems to imply that we earn favor with God. We're on the knife's edge when we talk about good works, right? Because we might slip into implying that we earn our favor with God. Let me assure you, if you come from either sort of background, fasting does not need to fall into either of those traps. 
Fasting can be a deeply practical way to practice repentance. It's different from things like prayer and almsgiving and clothing the naked and uh, giving drink to the thirsty. Because you see, all those things, they're good in themselves. If you come, uh, if you're walking down the street and you come upon a person who's really thirsty, you give them a drink of water. There is no hesitation in anybody's mind that you just did something good. You did what Jesus would call a good work, right? If you come upon somebody who's naked and you clothe them, same thing. You've done what Jesus would call a good work. Fasting's a bit different because in itself, fasting's indifferent. Whether your fasting is good or whether it's evil, it depends on why you fast, your motive. That said, if we fast, in order to reclaim our hearts from the shadow, to be agents of God's light and life in the world, then we are engaging in a deeply significant and formative Christian practice. Okay, that was the first point that I wanted to focus on tonight. Our problem is not a mind problem, it's a heart problem. So the solution is not new ideas, but by the grace of the Holy Spirit, new habits. Now, what I want to do for the remainder of this sermon is to convince you that when we fast, we're not just doing something, we're saying something. When we fast, we're telling a story. Tonight, my prayer for you guys is that we would all leave understanding that when we fast, we are identifying our own faces in a sweeping biblical narrative. So let's begin our, explanation, our exploration of this storyline this way. Why do we fast? We fast because fasting teaches us to hunger for Jesus. It forms us into people who hunger for the one who says this really crazy sounding stuff in John's gospel. Like this in John chapter 6. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man... And drink his blood. You have no life in you. Fasting forms us into people who can take those words in and treasure them. When we fast, we're learning to hunger for Jesus. Now here's the key point for the story that we tell when we fast. And this is going to be unclear at the beginning and it's going to get clearer as we go along. Forewarning. When Jesus calls us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he's doing something that's strange. It doesn't make sense to us. But to a first century Jewish listener, they would have understood immediately. He is saying that anyone who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, is like Israel at the time of the Exodus. Let me explain. Remember the story? In the Exodus, God brings his people Israel out of slavery. He parts the Red Sea so that Israel passes through on dry ground. He leads them through the wilderness, delivers them from their enemies, and brings them into the promised land. And then Psalm 136 adds this lovely little note. He gives food to all flesh. Now the Exodus was the pivotal saving act of God on behalf of his people. Everything before it in the Old Testament looks forward to it. And everything after it in the Old Testament and everything in the New Testament is steeped in its memory. 
The Exodus is the central story in the imagination of the people of God. So let's pause and now drill down deeper into this. When Jesus commands his disciples to eat his flesh and drink his blood, he's preparing them to see that by his death on the cross, God is working a new exodus. The Old Testament prophets had looked forward to this day. Remember, for hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews had languished in exile. They'd been kicked out of their homeland, right? Scattered among the nations. And the prophets looked forward to this day when God would restore them, bringing them out of exile in this mighty act that was redolent of the exodus of old. In fact, The prophets thought that this new exodus was going to be so serious, such a big deal, so impressive, that Israel would forget all about the old exodus. That the Red Sea would be like a forgotten dream. Listen to Isaiah chapter 43, 19 to 21. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Or Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. What's God promising here? He's promising that the way in which he will save his people, once and for all, will be both like the Exodus, and yet so much greater, that by comparison, Israel's rescue through the Red Sea will be like nothing. Now let's quickly retrace our ground. In the first place, I said to you guys that the Christian life calls not just for a new set of ideas, but for new habits. And then I suggested that the habit of prayer is kind of unique. It's kind of unique. It points us to the central story of the Bible, the story of the Exodus. Fasting prepares us to feed on Jesus, right? Well, now we need to understand just what it means to feed on Jesus. This is not going to be clear right at the beginning. It's going to get clearer as we go. When Jesus commands us to eat his flesh and drink his blood... He is saying that in him, the new exodus, that promised moment when God is going to outshine everything he's ever done, it's arrived. The kingdom has come. God's in-breaking new creation is a reality. The new exodus has finally arrived. Okay, but what does this have to do with eating and drinking? Well, let me explain. Think back... To the story of the Exodus, if you grew up with flannel graphs, just go ahead and pull that right up in front of your mind's eye. What miracle, this is a rhetorical question, what miracle accompanied the Exodus? The manna from heaven. Well, now think of Jesus feeding the multitude in the wilderness. He is dropping every hint he can to show us that he is the one, the promised one, who provides bread from heaven, the new manna, that great miracle which accompanied the Exodus. Just like Moses fed the Israelites with miraculous bread in the wilderness, so Jesus provides miraculous bread in the wilderness. He's saying the new Exodus is here. And look, Mark and Luke even make this clearer. Just like Moses divided the Israelites at Sinai into groups of hundreds and fifties and tens, 
What does Jesus do before he multiplies the bread? Do you remember? He divides them into fifties and hundreds before he feeds them. What's the point? Jesus gives the bread of heaven that accompanies the new exodus. Now, John, in his gospel, John adds the detail that this feeding, Jesus' feeding of the multitude, happened near the time of the Jewish Passover. And that tells us that Jesus performed this miracle at the same time of year when the original miracle of the manna from heaven took place. And by the way, it was the same time of year when Jews would go to the synagogue and the scripture readings that they would hear would be focusing, guess what, on the Exodus and on the miracles surrounding it. People's imaginations were primed to connect Jesus' words and deeds to the Exodus. So let's draw a connection. Think to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. With all this in mind, what do you think Jesus is teaching us to pray? For our daily needs? Yeah, but more. He's teaching us to ask for the daily bread of the new manna that we might feed on him by faith as the Israelites fed in the wilderness. Now, this leads us to the main way that the new Exodus story shows us what it is to feed on Jesus and consequently what it is that we're preparing for when we fast. Jesus identifies himself, yes, as the new manna. That's the point. But he also identifies himself as the Passover lamb, that sacrificial offering through whose death the salvation of God's people would be achieved. And this is where we begin to understand what it means to feed on Jesus. At the Last Supper, Jesus held a Passover meal with his disciples. Now, there's an academic debate among scholars about whether John says it happens on a different night than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, And I think the ones who say that it did are wrong, and I'm happy to explain why I think that after the service. I'll spare you the, um, the debate. I'm convinced that all four Gospels agree that Jesus held a Passover meal with his disciples on the same time, and that this Passover meal is what we refer to as the Last Supper. Remember, in Jesus, the new exodus has begun. New manna has arrived in the wilderness, and now, just like in the first exodus, There must be a Passover meal. But this is no ordinary Passover meal. In this meal, Jesus identifies himself as the Passover lamb whose death on the cross will ransom and redeem the people of God. He's saying, I'm the lamb Isaiah promised when he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And when the Jews kept Passover, a male lamb, one year old, was slain, roasted, and eaten. 
And its blood was smeared on the door frames as a sign of protection from the wrath of God. And in this way, the Passover sacrifice saved God's people from God's holy wrath. It was a sign, right? But a sign that effected something. Well, here suddenly we're discovering what Jesus means when he says to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's talking about eating the true Passover lamb. He's saying to his disciples at the time, the Jewish temple is about to become obsolete at the moment of my death. The true Passover lamb, I myself am about to be sacrificed. So instead of the old feast centered in the temple, Jesus is calling his disciples to keep a new feast, a feast that looks backward to God's redeeming work in the Exodus and forward to the banquet of the kingdom of God when God's people will feast in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus calls all his disciples regularly to keep the feast, daily bread, by which he has inaugurated the new exodus spoken of by the prophets. This is a lot. Remember we began tracing the biblical backdrop of this whole new exodus storyline with Jesus' really strange words in John 6. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, that very strange thing ought to be getting a bit clearer. When Jesus calls us to feed on him, he is commanding a specific, concrete, biblically supercharged act. He is calling us to participate in the sacrament of Holy Communion to partake of his body and blood at this table, to prepare for this meal above all else is why we fast. We fast because we want to come to this table hungry for the heavenly manna, for the Passover lamb that has been sacrificed, like Paul says, once for all upon the cross. This is why I want to encourage you to participate in the fast that begins on Monday, Thursday at our worship service here and which concludes at the Easter Vigil on Saturday night at Holy Communion. The point is that we want the last food that passes our lips before we recall the suffering and death of our Savior to be the bread and the wine. And we want the first food that passes our lips after we have celebrated his resurrection to be the bread and the wine. Look, when I wake up in the morning, the greatest gift that God has for me is not my iPhone. It's my Bible. So my fingers need to skip over my iPhone and take my Bible. It's what I want. It's what I prefer. It's what I desire. When we fast... The greatest gift God has for us, it's not just any food. It is the food of Christ's body and blood, the food and drink, as you and I say every Sunday, the food and drink of new and unending life in him. The new Passover meal for a people crying out for final deliverance from the shadow of death. In the meantime, like Frodo, we remain under hill wandering in the wilderness of shadow, subject to evil and misery and death.
But Lent reminds us that through the death of Christ and through the power of the Spirit, God is leading us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His Son. That's the new exodus. And while we pass through this shadow, we fast. Because it is a gift of God to hunger for the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our true manna, our Passover lamb, to whom be honor and wealth, wisdom and might, glory and honor and blessing forever and ever. Amen.